The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. The headlines this hour. UBS beats on the top and bottom line, delivering its best second quarter in nine years, despite declines in both its investment bank and wealth management divisions. U.S. stocks rise. The tech uh, S&P sector notching a fresh record high ahead of key earnings from Facebook, Alphabet and Amazon. Uh, Britain seeks a European maritime mission to respond to Iran's piracy in the Gulf. Whilst President Trump says Tehran's claim it captured CIA spies is totally false. And Sterling weakens again as concerns grow over a no-deal Brexit, with Boris Johnson expected to be designated the UK's new Prime Minister later today. Plus, more gloom for the auto sector as a German supplier Continental becomes the latest to cut its outlook, predicting a fall in global vehicle production. There is so much to discuss in these numbers out from UBS, both for the company itself and as a metaphor for the broader industry and broader industry concerns. But let me just give you the raw figures that Jeff was mentioning in the headlines there. Beat on forecast, okay? 1.4 billion US dollars net profit for the second quarter 2019 due to better than expected gains in corporate banking and gains in advisory business, which softened uh, an investment banking fall, so says the group. The 1% rise meant Switzerland's biggest bank earned uh, earnings exceeded the median net profit forecast of the bank's poll uh, for and the own consensus for a slide of 24.9% to 1.038 billion as well. There is lots in here as well. Return, uh, Rosset 1, 16% as well. Capital ratio, CT 1, 13.3% at the end of the second quarter. Uh, leverage ratio coming in at 3.8% as well. But let's get some of the commentary. You don't just want to hear about the numbers as well. Uh, they're talking about the outlook as well. And I thought this was fascinating. Uh, talking about political uncertainties, Geopolitical tensions, perhaps one would always say that. But central banks are indicating reversal of monetary policy. And I don't know, good morning, Jeff and Karen, if you spotted either this uh, comment. But a sharp drop in interest rates, yeah? And let's just give the premise for this. The idea is if you drop interest rates and increase QE, uh, quantitative buying and what have you, then you are going to improve the outlook for the economy. Well, the banks are explicitly saying this will be detrimental to their business, just so long as the central bank is aware of this as well, because a sharp drop in interest rates, so says UBS today, and expected rate cuts will continue to adversely affect net interest income compared with the previous year. Okay. So as far as I can see, and I'm waiting for um, the UBS management to disagree, which I don't think they are because we've heard it from Herr uh, Weber previously. We'll probably hear something like that from Sergio Motti at 7.45 CT, that central bank measures are adversely affecting their net interest income. Just so we know this, that the banks are being hit by the policies of the central bank. Um, is this an excuse to just explain away the fact that actually the banks are not thriving in an environment of extremely low interest rates that should be helping animal spirits. I mean, the argument is that what they lose on the net interest margin, they should be able to make up for in the wealth well, management the business argument. and in investment banking because the fee income should go up mm. if the economic activity 
is stimulated by lower interest rates. And you're absolutely right that those are the two areas we're trying to pressure. 23% year-on-year declines in investment banking. And as you pointed out, global wealth management is not proliferating in this environment, down 12% year-on-year. The animal spirits you allude to, perhaps they would be out in force if there were not a trade war being waged. And we've seen it all year. There's been uncertainty from investors about whether they want to participate in some of the risk on markets. And I think this year started with that warning from Sergio Motti at UBS about how bad the client activity was at the bank, which also was a warning sign for the rest of the banking sector. Any improvement in that commentary today would be welcome for the I overall banking sector. Look, well, no one's arguing about this this morning, so which is nice. No. Well, I don't know if that's good for the view or yes. not, actually. But, 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 the, but the point here is that investors of UBS uh, or, or clients of UBS are investing in the market, aren't they? They're not all sitting in cash. We've established this from various of our guests. So they are either in the bond market, if they're more cautious, or they have some form of barbell strategy, or they have some mix, including equities, in which case the clients themselves have actually made a lot of money because everything has gone up. And this is where many market strategies have a conundrum now about the fact that everything's gone up and we don't like it because that's not historically what happens with the inverse relationship between bonds uh, and equities as well. So everything's gone up. So the clients themselves have probably done okay it's just the fact that there is a drop in investment banking activity and there is a drop in uh, global wealth management flows because on the latter point is perhaps because there's an awful lot of people chasing the same money and the same demographic interest now as well. Yeah, well, this is where the sophistication of central bank activity needs to evolve. And we've seen the BOJ, which has acknowledged the impact that its actions are having on the bank's profitability, adjust the way it targets interest rates across the yield curve to try and help the banks. And I suspect that what we may see from the ECB as it looks again at the announcements that we get from people like UBS and Santander, we'll talk about that in just a second, but I think we might get a shift in the way they think about um, targeting the economy with interest rate reductions or e- ways of easing the pain on the banking system. And of course they could do that yes, they could. with further Teltros and assistance. I mean, if, if no, the- I thought you were going to be really innovative there and say with greater commercial um, CMU, Capital Markets Union, with a re-impetus into alternative methods of financing for European corporates and that as well. I thought you were going to be really innovative about the structural responses there. Yeah, but the trouble is that's the dead on arrival at this dead point. On isn't arrival it? At Where point, is yes. the Capital Markets Union? And, and, and again, I think one of the greatest ironies, one of the greatest ironies of the, how this whole elongated Brexit process, and this is a fact, by the way, this is not me being political, was that there was a Brit, Lord John Hill, actually driving a steamroller through this process and doing an incredible job. But of course, he had to resign on the back of Brexit as well. I will say one thing. UBS has announced the billion dollars of buybacks on the stock this year as well. The stock's been under enormous pressure as well. Look at any chart as well. They're pretty near their 52-week low, which was hit on the 25th of June of 11 Swiss 24 as well. Shares down 3.5% year to date. Interestingly, although the price to book is around 0.83, the price earnings ratio Nowhere near acceptable, I'm sure, for Mr. Amati. 9.36. Who we will be speaking to at 7.45? Uh, C-E-T. L- let me just, we're also going to be hearing, of course, from Santander a little bit later on in the programme. Let me just tell you that straight away. Jose Garcia Cantera will join us. Um, let me just bingo call the numbers here. Net profit in at 3.23 billion euros for the first half. Return on tangible equity, 10.5% in the first half encouraging that that ROTE is in double-digit figures. The first half net interest income in at 17.64. Bad loan ratio at 3.51% in uh, at the end of June. 
Uh, net profit 1.39 billion euros, net interest income 8.95 billion euros and a tier one capital ratio in at 11.3. Um, the point here is that they've actually posted an 18% decline in second quarter net profit over the previous period. Uh, the group says that's because they've been hit by restructuring costs which were anticipated of 706 million euros due mainly to the integration of Banco Popular. Santander took over this business back in June of 2017 and they continue of course to reshape that business going forward. Um, the other big story of course which we will be hoping to get some answers from from the CFO <laughs> is just what progress is being made in this uh, issue of Andrea Orsal's litigation because as we understand it this has not gone away. Um, Andrea Orsal is still hoping for some form of compensation, it seems, over that whole question of is he or isn't he going to be running Santander? Well, he clearly isn't. But at what stage does he desist with this litigation? And ultimately, what will Santander have to pay out going forward? We'll ask the question. Let's see if we get some answers from the CFO. It's juicier, doesn't it? Because there was a report out in the FT a couple of weeks back saying that Santander had actually offered to pay or sell a package worth up to 52 million euros when that is in contrast to the company saying, well, they, they effectively balked at the sign-on fee. It was too high that the board couldn't sign up. So it sounds like there was a, a number on a piece of paper handed over to or sell. So something sort of has happened was in that process. about money or was it about who calls the shots at Santander? And I bow to both of your knowledge on this one as well because you both, you know, at various times spent a lot of time studying the banking sector. Jeff, I think you were near an ATM speaking to the CEO quite recently. Yes. Well, well, oh, to the, the chairwoman. The chairman. Yeah. And I spoke um, to Anna too. It what mm. was after, oh, sorry, you after the fact. Well, uh, something doesn't <coughs> ring true about this. I mean, Anna got in and uh, Andrea or Sal have known each other for many, many years. So mm. Anna would have known what she was getting into in terms of a high profile CEO well, with a fairly significant ego, uh, well noted in, in circles. Some that backed up by the deal making him done. Yeah, but if you want to be an executive chairman stroke chairwoman, I don't know what the correct terminology in this case is as well, and you have someone who is as forceful and uh, high personality as Andrea Archel as well, then surely there, we, we appreciate it's going to be some form of conflict. You don't have two, dare I say, some Martin Sorrells in a company. You don't have dare, uh, two uh, Lord John Browns or whatever. You, know, you, don't, you can't have two people leading the company. Like Fred Goodwin, for instance, perhaps one part of the problem when RBS collapsed was the fact that, let's face it, the, the, the board around him couldn't say boo to a goose. This is sort of justification after the fact, though, don't you think? Because much of this would have been known no, to, to both players coming into negotiations. I think both of them would have been aware of this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, who knows? Uh, and that's the, real, that's the real answer, is it? We've never actually got to the real answer mm -hmm. as to why. Probably all of the above. Um, but you would have thought, given the relationship previously, that they went into that arrangement eyes wide open. Perhaps it was how Andrea Orsal then started talking about strategy that put the fly in the ointment. But we, we really actually don't know at this point what took place in that meeting. How extraordinary. There's Isn't something that's created such a, not a calamity, but a real public relations disaster for Santander. And yet you know, the world's banking journalists are none the wiser of what it's all about.
Uh, Unicredit is reportedly considering around 10,000 job cuts as part of an overhaul to be announced at the end of the year. The cuts would represent around 10% of the Italian bank's global workforce, but will predominantly affect its domestic staff. According to multiple reports, Unicredit has declined to comment on that story. I'm going to take you to Adorsia, a company that we haven't spoken about for a while. This is a company spun out of Actilion, which was sold to Johnson & Johnson. And uh, first half results now crossing for the company, where they've effectively given us uh, some guidance uh, on U.S. GAAP operating expenses uh, for the first half at $252 million, non-GAAP at $234 million. Swissy, unchanged guidance for this year. U.S. GAAP operating expenses of around 570 million. So uh, this is a business that uh, the managing director and chief executive officer Jean-Paul Clausel explains uh, the first half has been about running their studies and getting ready for the wave of results and news flow approaching soon. So let's just dive into that and welcome back to the channel Jean-Paul Clausel, who is the CEO of the Dorsier. Jean-Paul, nice to see you again. Thank you very much for joining us. Just set the scene because we've not spoken to you for many months. Tell us what you're up to at the company. You know, the company uh, is doing extremely well. Uh, we are all in track with uh, four phase three, 11 product in clinical development. And in fact, what we are trying to do is to set up a full-fledged company within a very limited amount of time. And I think this is unique in the industry. Just walk us through some of the drugs that you're hoping to bring to market soon. The first one, I think, is going to be a sleep drug, an insomnia drug, which is quite unique because it really uh, allows the patients not to wake up so easily. It's a completely new mechanism of action. It should be a revolution for the domain of insomnia. That's the first one. The second one uh, should be a drug for rare disease, Fabry disease. Third one uh, should be a drug for a form of a stroke. And the fourth one, in development, in collaboration with Johnson & Johnson, is a drug for patients who are resisting to three antihypertensive therapy and have a very severe form of hypertension. Uh, Jean-Paul, always a pleasure speaking to you, sir, as well. Look, um, your losses are picking up, and I think there's a nod to that as well in your liquidity and indebtedness line in the report as well, saying you've got around about a billion Swissy in various deposits and liquidity as well. But you're losing, uh, if I extrapolated from the first half, uh, up to half of that on an annual basis at the moment. Are you worried about your ability uh, to fund your 10-drug pipeline, given the fact that your losses are picking up? Uh, first, what you have to realize is that uh, we are at the peak of the clinical studies expenses because we have the four products in full in phase three in development, and uh, in the, the next uh, next year it should start to decrease. And uh, of course, we are going to be preparing for the launch of the product. So we are going to uh, go to the revenue phase. And uh, of course, uh, we need and we will need at one stage uh, to raise money. But that will happen once we have the result of our studies, once we know what we are going to do uh, with uh, this money and with our products.
Yeah, but Jean-Paul, and, and I know I don't want to go back over old ground that we've covered before as well, but you've got an 8% shareholder, Johnson Johnson, from which you're spun out of. And yet at the same time, I'm pretty sure I've read, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you will be looking for late stage partners to take these drugs beyond these clinical studies. So you're a spun out company, but you're going to be looking back for partnerships on these drugs going forward. So why were you spun out in the first place? I mean, there's an awful lot of corporate action going on in your life over the last couple of years. First of all, being sold to Johnson Johnson, then being spun out and now looking for partners again. It just seems like a merry-go-round, sir. Uh, first, you are saying that we are going to look for partner. I think that uh, it's going to be um, maybe if we are looking for partner, but we are going to look for partner keeping the control of these products. We will never, for the most important drugs of hydrosia, lose uh, the control because uh, we it, these are these drugs are key key for revenues so we are in a very uh, a unique situation of a company going to be in a few years uh, setting up a, a full-fledged organization including commercial organization and uh, we have the cash to do it we might need and we will need to raise some money but we will do it at the stage where we will know of phase three and uh, in the history of the industry it has never happened you can imagine that we are just two years after the creation of the company and we are speaking of launching a drug Many companies never launch a drug 10, 15 years after the creation of the company. So, of course, this means that we are spending uh, more money than usual because we are just going faster than usual. John Paul, I always love talking to an innovator like you, and I very much enjoy your company. So thank you very much indeed for taking all our questions ever. We really do appreciate it. And we're watching that space for those drugs as well to come through. Uh, and I take your point about the um, speed with which you're getting drugs to market. Jean Paul Clausel, who is the CEO of Edorcia. What's coming up, Jeff? Uh, coming up on the programme, the UK calls for help from its European allies amid heightened tensions in the Strait of Hormuz. The latest developments on that story. And if you just can't get enough of Sportbox, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Head to cmc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Prior session wobbles put aside, the U.S. markets were back on decent form as well, led by technology uh, in the previous session. Big week and a half coming up as well, of course, because we are focusing 
on the medium term, on GDP figures at the tail end of the week and on the, uh, the slightly longer term on the 31st of July to see whether it was, after all, 25 or 50 basis points that the Fed had decided to cut. We presume it is one of the above. But it's the technology sector, as I say, that was leading us higher. Should we have a look at US tech? The subsector on the S&P uh, was at a record level, led higher by the likes of Intel, 2.2% higher. We saw a similar margin of upside over at Apple. Amazon rising to 1985. Uh, Alphabet, a little bit of a laggard there, 0.7 of 1% higher. But semiconductors, do you know who Mark Delaney is? No, neither do I as well, but he's one of the key analysts in the semiconductor sector over at UBS as well. And he and his colleagues have been upgrading the sector, looking a little bit more favorably uh, over at memory. So what do we have here? Well, applied materials, look at that, 6.1% high. Micron Tech, 3.7% to the upside. And Lamb Research, 4.4% up. What about the impression this has left on Asian indices and Equity trading there, well, a very tempered move on both the Hong Kong and the mainland Shanghai composite markets as well. But we do have a 1.2% increase on the Nikkei over in Japan as well. Opening calls this time yesterday were pretty flat, uh, but we do have some, uh, some robust gains at the start of trading, including, of course, in the Zetradax. Some of the tech stocks there moving to the upside. And the FTSE getting a bit of relief from oil prices moving back on the uptick after getting a bit of a drubbing as of late. Uh, Let's talk about the latest on the debt deal. Congressional leaders and the White House have agreed a two-year budget deal, raising the debt ceiling and lifting federal spending. The U.S. was at risk of a potential debt default in early September if an agreement hadn't been reached. Congress needs to approve the deal before the president can sign the bill into law. President Trump welcomed the deal on Twitter, describing it as a, quote, great compromise. No, that can't be right. This can't be right because I've just got a piece here that says, during the 2016 presidential campaign, Republican candidate Donald Trump promised he would eliminate the nation's debt in eight years. Well, well, you've still got another four to get on with it. (laughs) So you up it as much as you can first, boom, then to get rid of it in the second four years. Borrow for growth. My understanding was the presidents in the last four years of their two-term stay in the White House, if they do get two terms, are less effective. Maybe I'm wrong. So there are great outliers to that, Mr. Roosevelt and others. So over the history of the United States, uh, the country has tended to pay down the national debt when not at war, and then at times of war, the national debt has increased. So yes. it finished uh, the Second World War with debt to GDP at about 120%. Yes. And then subsequently, it fell, little, little rallies, peaks, then fell. And then Clinton probably is the last president who made any real effort to try and keep a lid on it. Didn't really bring it down very much, but kept a lid on it. And then Obama and um, uh, George W., uh, it, it's gone up. And subsequently, presidents seem to have lost the will Mm. to manage down the national debt. But not the will to say they're going to get it down. Well, unfortunately, you know, this is the the whole point of that exercise is to have dry powder for when you have a crisis. But unfortunately, we're not in that situation any longer. Which could fall in the next four years if there is another term in office, potentially a given late cycle in the economy. Well, it's it's a head scratcher, just like this one as well. You know the UK, which is desperate to get out of the EU, yeah? Or at least the new incoming... uh, 
Prime Minister may well be. Well, the same country, it now wants to work with its European allies uh, on military issues, apparently. Uh, yes, the UK is calling on key European allies to help it launch a maritime protection mission in the Strait of Hormuz. Iran State TV has released new video of what it says is the crew of the British flagged tanker it seized on Friday. Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif said the ship was, quote, passing through the wrong channels. In Westminster, the UK Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt urged Iran to release the Sena Impero and the people on board. Under international law, Iran had no right to obstruct the ship's passage, let alone board her. It, it was therefore an act of state piracy, which the House will have no hesitation in condemning. Even more worryingly, this incident was a flag flagrant breach of the principle of free navigation on which the global trading system and world economy ultimately depends. Jeremy Hunt. Well, Boris Johnson is expected to be named as the leader of the British Conservative Party later today as the country's next prime minister. He has said he will take a, quote, do or die approach to Brexit. Let's get out to Willem, who joins us with more. Um, Willem, two questions then. One is, can you just briefly explain when we will find out whether Boris Johnson is the next prime minister? And two, what does he actually mean by do or die? OK, timeline first then, Jeff. At some point between 11 and 12 today, the Conservative Party will announce who is the winner of their election contest. They've had two and a half weeks of postal ballots, so members from across the country, more than 100,000 of them, have sent in those ballots by 5 p.m. last night. And at some point in that hour, we're expecting to hear that Boris Johnson is the winner of that contest. He's not prime minister at that stage, though. He's just the newly elected leader of the Conservative Party. He won't be formally announced as prime minister until tomorrow. That's once Theresa May has left number 10 Downing Street. She will have uh, gone through the final prime minister's questions time at the House of Commons and then will travel to Buckingham Palace to formally tender her resignation to the Queen. Only then would we see Boris Johnson as the new Conservative leader be invited by the Queen to form a new government. And at that point, we'd start hearing some of his cabinet selections. In terms of do or die, that's in reference to this October 31st extension deadline the European Union gave to the UK a few months ago. He's essentially said that whether or not he's able to win any new concessions and make any significant changes to the agreement with the European Union, he wants the UK to leave Europe on that date, come what may, to use his own language. And the challenge, of course, is going to be that if he doesn't come back with any significant concessions from Europe and doesn't see any major changes to that agreement, then it's going to be very difficult for him to persuade members of his own party that this agreement is in the best interest since it's been voted down three times in the past. And if he does then push for a hard Brexit, that will be something that other members of his own party might also oppose in Parliament. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.